There is a major review that Health New Zealand is undergoing now. The irony is Health New Zealand are currently blaming MOH about the mental health issues. While they didn't have these uh, things, but Health New Zealand are working very hard now to put in uh, reporting. And the woman that sent me that, her name is Jo Chiplin. She was the woman that initiated the original. So she's blaming her old self. <laughs> she's blaming her old self. She's. I've got a different uniform on now, so that exonerates yeah, no, me. Yeah, interesting when people like, oh, look, this is my new job with my new title with Te Whatu Ora. And I'm like, isn't that the same job that you had with a different, with a DH? It is literally <laughs> shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Know, it's literally, yeah. and we'll just change the name of the Titanic so to the Hindenburg. when people, when, oh, when high ups are giving their press release or like the emails that they give to staff is saying that, don't worry, like everyone's job is safe. And I'm like, should they be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Koto and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighborhood pediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. On this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, we welcome Mike King. He is a well-known household name in Aotearoa for his career in comedy and TV. But today we will call it all about his own mental health struggles and his journey to help kids with his charities, I Am Hope and Gumboot Friday. So welcome to Revolving Door Podcast. Pleasure to have you, Mike King. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, good. So you've been a lot in the media lately, a little bit of Celebrity Treasure Island, a little bit of your Gumboot Friday stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I really want to know is about, so like what led you to working so hard in this mental health space? It all started with a lovely district court judge back in 2012 who gave me 200 hours of community service for riding my motorbike without a license, which just goes to show you the inequities in the justice system in this country. I know real criminals who have got less than 200 hours community service for things that are much worse than riding a bike without a license, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. When I was pondering how I was going to serve my community there 200 hours, I got a phone call from a principal in Northland a High School, area school, and asked me to go up there and speak to the kids. And at the time, I was doing a radio show called The Nutters Club, which is, I still say it was the first podcast in New Zealand that started in 2008, I think it was. And it was just a radio show where we chat. And uh, he used to listen to it going home. So he knew I'd had a few mental health issues and he knew about my suicide ideation. So he asked me to go up there and speak to the kids. And being an adult and being a know-it-all parent, I went up there just like everyone else. I thought I had all the answers and I was going to go up there and tell these young people to stop killing themselves and the effect that they're having on their communities. And I was going to do it with humour. Why? Because I'm stupid. <laughs> anyway, I got up there and I walked into the hall and there was only about 220 kids. 
but the atmosphere in the room was very thick and very heavy. And in that moment, I knew jokes weren't going to be appropriate. So I started talking to these young people about my journey through my mental health ups and downs, in particular focusing on my inner critic and the negative conversations I'd had with myself my whole life. And the kids went from leaning back in their seats going, oh, here's another dickhead from Auckland coming up here and telling us what to do, to suddenly starting to sit up in their seats and looking down the rows at their friends going as if to say, can you believe this? This guy is not talking about us. And they were able to recognise the beginning of their journey and my story. And because I took my mask off, they took their masks off and they started asking me questions at the end of the talk, which were mind-blowing for me. I'd always had the attitude that kids were stupid. Um, oh, kids yeah. are very smart. They are, their brains are dry sponges ready to anything yeah. that you say. Well, particularly in these rural areas, we make assumptions. And when I finished the talk, one of the teachers came up to me and said, we've got five kids on suicide watch and they really talked to your story and wondering if you go and talk to them. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll go and talk to them. I'd never talked to suicidal kids before. I was expecting a bunch of crying and really upset kids walking, just ordinary kids. And I'm like, how are you going? Yeah, we're good. I was like, all right. Apparently you guys want to kill yourself? Yep. I'm like, well, Okay might want to tell your face because you don't look very suicidal. And I said to the first young man, I said, so what's going on with you? And he went, told me a story. And it was harrowing. And I was like, wow, how are you still here? And then I said, have you talked to your mum and dad about any of this stuff? Him and the other four just looked at me like, no. And why not? Because every time I talk to my parents, every time I talk to an adult, every time I talk to a teacher, they make it about them and they make me feel worse. And then I did what every adult does in that situation. I went straight to the next kid. What about you? And he goes, it's a multi boy, good looking fella. And he said, first off, I'm gay. And I'm like, wow. Again, really stupidly making assumptions. I said, that must be really tough. Here we are in the heart of gangland Northland and you're wrestling with your sexuality. And he goes, I'm sweet with being gay. And I was like, oh, okay. So what's the problem? He said, I'm sick and tired of being judged by society. I said, what do you mean? He goes, even when I hear it in jest from my friends, every time I hear the words faggot, homo, gay boy, pufter, I think, so this is how society sees me. And I think, what's the point? Now, that cut me in half. Why? Because at the time I was a stand-up comedian, not only was I saying those words on radio, television, and on live stage, I was actively encouraging other people to say those words as a joke. And that was the first time in my life that I realized that my words kill. And I listened to the other three kids, and just as I'd seen the beginning of their journey and my story, I saw my journey as a parent in their story. And I thought, there but for the grace of God go I. And so I went home that night and I said to my wife, that was just the most unbelievable day that I've ever had. And she goes, something must have gone right. You've got another two schools. And I was like, really? And she went, yeah. Then another two schools, then another two schools, then another two schools. Then my probation officer rang me up and said, you don't have to speak in schools anymore. And I was like, hell no, I ain't stopping. So that was the beginning. It was in 2013. And you haven't stopped. Haven't stopped. 
Yeah. I haven't stopped. Last week I was reading a book to five-year-olds, gave a, a talk to a bunch of uh, 11-year-olds and then in Whanganui, and then I was down in Hokitika and Greymouth doing talks down there for high school students. So, yeah, love it. Can I ask you a bit more about your journey? Like what happened with you and your mental health at the beginning? Oh, I've always struggled with my mental health my whole life. My whole life, as a kid growing up, I was one of those kids. I was a whore kid. Always wanted to go first at everything. There's a roof to jump off. I was going to jump off at first. My old man used to think I was a show-off. He used to constantly chest, stop showing off. What the hell are you? Stop being a big mouth. I'm like, okay, let me go first. I was never showing off. I always had, as a kid, I had an insatiable need to prove myself. As a kid growing up, I always thought other kids were better than me. They were faster, stronger, academically more gifted. And all I wanted to do was be a world champion at something for my own self-esteem. So I was one of those kids that would try something new every day. But the second I realised I couldn't be the best in the world at it, I quit, which really pissed my dad off. My dad was old school. Once you start something, you see it through to the end. And here was his son constantly picking something up and then just chucking it away. Do you think it was like a sort of perfectionism thing? Oh, of course. Yeah. Always. Artists are always perfectionists, <laughs> and that's what we do. And then when I was eight years old, I told my first joke. What was I, the joke? I don't even remember. <laughs> a mate of mine told a joke. No one laughed. A bunch of kids tried to make him repeat the joke so they could mock him. I jumped in and said exactly the same joke, and everyone laughed. And in that moment, I knew that that was something I could do. So I harbored that dream, of course. My dad was a tradesman. You know, you can't leave school without a trade. So I went on and took an apprenticeship as a chef. I'm a London City and Guilds qualified chef. So went to join the mongrel mob. Well, what happened between being a chef and then joining the mongrel mob? So I was a chef around here, actually, at St. Luke's at a restaurant called El Trovador when St. Luke's was actually a square. and it was an There was a square there? Yeah, it was a, St. Luke's Square <laughs> was what it was called. I see. Because it was square. This was back in the 70s. Oh, long before my yeah, time. <laughs> long before your time. And I just moved into Morningside, and Morningside was a, was a gang area. Highway 61's mongrel mob, headhunters, they were all living around there. So we just moved in <laughs> and started hanging out. They were like a family, so just started hanging out. And then one night something happened and I didn't do anything, but there was a possibility that I could have gone to jail for a really long time if things had gone wrong. And I just went, oh, screw this, I'm over this. I'm not going to go to jail for someone else. I'm not that stupid. So I joined the Merchant Navy and went to sea for 14 years. <laughs> And then at what point did you make that transition to comedy? Well, I broke my leg playing rugby uh, back in early mid-90s. And while I was recouping, I saw an ad for some comedy in a bar. I went along and watched and I thought, these guys are pretty good. Went along and watched the next week and yeah, these guys are okay. Went along the next week and went, these guys are useless. <laughs> and you could do a better job, is that what you're thinking? That's exactly <laughs> what I did. And so I went home, wrote a comedy set. Went back to the pub next week and I said to the guy, how do I get on? He goes, oh, come back in six weeks. There's a rookie night in six weeks. And I went, who's on? He told me. And I went, I've been watching these guys for weeks. I think they're useless. I think I'm funnier than all of them. Here's $400. If anyone walks out or no one laughs, you can buy the whole bar drinks so you'll never see me again. And I went on that night and smashed it. Nice. And how old were you at that point? 33. Oh, it's not too late for me in my comedy career. No. <laughs> no, I've got good genes, though, so I looked 18. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, you look fantastic right now. I'm 60 now. Yeah, you look great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I was reading a bit about, like, your history, obviously, trying to do my research. Wikipedia's you know? not exactly. very good. <laughs> There's a lot of falsehoods in there. I 
was nominated for a Billy T Award. That never happened. Oh, really? I was never eligible as a new <laughs> comedian. And me and my mate Andy Clay started touring comedy, so we were never considered rookies. So there's something that's quite close to my heart. You've got loved ones who, you know, have significant mental health issues and one of them particularly with addiction and substance dependence. I was reading that was something that you've been through as well. Yeah. Could you tell me what was happening in your life that led you to be doing that? An overactive inner critic. My whole life people used to think, look at that Mike King always running around having fun. When's he going to grow up? House is working and he's out drinking and he's doing drugs. No drug addict or alcoholic drinks or does drugs for fun. We do it to run from hell. And what's hell? That little voice in our heads that continually barrages us with negative comments telling us we're not good enough. Other people are better than you. They're always talking about you. Most people have an ordinary inner critic. My inner critic's like a crying newborn baby with colic, screaming hateful messages 24-7 inside my head and getting wasted. It's like leaving the baby in the bedroom and going into the lounge and just escaping. You know, just going, yeah, this is us, we're good. I can still hear the baby crying, but it's at a distance now that I can live with. It's always there, it never goes away, but I just get a break from myself. Only problem is the buzz only lasts five or six hours, then you've got to go back into the bedroom. The baby's screaming louder and I've got a headache. And the only way to get over that is to get wasted again and get wasted again and get wasted again. It's the relentless pursuit of temporary happiness. And it happens for everybody. I'm so sick of people going to me, coming to me, going, what was it like being an addict? You tell me. I'm not an addict. You go to the gym seven days a week, you miss a day, you turn into an asshole. You tell me what it's like. What's it like hiding things from your loved ones? You tell me. I don't hide. You play golf three times a week. You tell your wife once a fortnight. You tell me. Everyone's addicted to something, but society will put labels on addictions. This is a good addiction. This is a bad addiction. Bad addiction. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, porn. Good addictions, exercise, eating, bike riding, whatever, you know. Most men who are having major problems mentally become addicted to work. But we don't say anything because that's a good addiction, because they're at work. The hypocrisy of society just drives me mental. The irony is drugs and alcohol are listed as a mental health problem. No, they're a mental health solution. And until you come up with a better solution, you don't take my solution off me. Anyone who's out there with an overactive and a critic knows this. Drugs and alcohol kept me alive. It kept me alive. But they're using it as a get-out-of-jail-free now. Like the crisis teams, they're like insurance salesmen. When they're selling it to the media, it's a phone book of stuff that we do for people. But when you go to make a claim and you want to see them, oh, it's a single A4 piece of paper and a phone book of what we don't do. First thing, drugs now, yeah, because that's the only thing. Can't see you. Go away, sober up. It's Our whole system is so screwed up. Yeah, I think it's like a really tricky topic because, you know, the person that, you know, is in my life who's got issues with substance use, you 
you can almost see why they are using the substance. We apply common factors. We go, oh, job, education, relationships. Well, that doesn't explain how the poorest people in the world are often the happiest people in the world. It doesn't explain it at all. We've got to stop focusing on the behaviour and ask what drives the behaviour. And at the forefront of your relative's problems is an overactive inner critic constantly criticising them. And it's particularly prominent in cultures where older generations are driven, driven to succeed, driven to make money, just driven to fit in. I feel sorry for kids today. I do talks for corporates and high-value organisations, and I say to them, I'd fucking hate to be your kids. And I mean it respectfully. Why? What do you mean? Look at you. You're all so perfect. You all drive such nice cars. You're constantly telling your kids what they're doing wrong. Your kids come home from school, they tell you about five things happening their day, four amazing ones bad. You go straight to the bad thing. You're constantly telling, you know, your mother and I, we left school when we were 14 years old. We built this factory with our bare hands. We had nothing on your age. We had no- We lived in a cardboard box. Do you think all of this fell out of the sky? Do you think money grows on trees? My mother did not. Meh, meh, meh. For a kid. Really like high standard to live up to and if you can't get there you know what we think we're saying to our kids is you're a great kid love you but we both could be a bit better yeah yeah, but you're a bit better what our kids are hearing no matter what i do i'm never going to be good enough for you can you imagine that can you imagine being a young person today living in a society where everyone's criticizing you Everyone's telling you what you're doing wrong and they're applying their standards and this expectation that every child should be happy. We've got snake oil salesmen selling happiness now. You're supposed to be happy. You have to be happy. I get so many parents saying to me all the time, oh, I just want Fritha to be happy. I just, don't I, baby? I just want you to be happy. What you're saying and the message that is being received are completely different. What you think you're saying is, I have your best and interest at heart and I just want happiness for you but it's a the, conditional kind of happiness because the, like you can only be happy if you achieve this or you do that no but in the child's mind it is I can only come to you when I'm happy 40% of kids in school will have a major crisis often associated with some type of suicidal thinking before they leave school before they leave school not in their lifetime before they leave school which is no big deal whoopty shit 99.9% of the people listening to this podcast have had a suicidal thought if you haven't left your house at least once in your life gone what the hell's the point you need to get out of the marshmallow you're living in seriously the stat that worries me is 80% of those kids who are suicidal never ask for help ever And the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what we as a society, as parents, as friends, are going to think, say or do. Kids tell me they don't talk to their parents about their suicidal thoughts. Why? Because I don't want to disappoint them. My mum and dad have sacrificed so much. My mum and dad have worked so hard. I can't now go and tell them that I want to die after all their hard work. How shit is that? Our kids would rather die than tell their parents they are thinking about dying. That's fucked up. But that's the world we're living in. That's the world we're living in. What can be done differently to try and increase their ability to ask for help? You've got to take away the stigma. It's stigma. Everything's stigma. 
we started out speaking in high schools and normalising the inner critic in high schools. And we thought that was a place that we belonged. So sharing our stories of life's ups and downs and battles with the inner critic, allowing kids to recognise themselves and then giving them the outcome, which was went to counselling and here's what counsellors do. They don't fix you. They give you the tools to help yourself. Don't let your eyes lie to you because when you walk in, your eyes will say this person can't help, particularly if they're not from your background. My first counsellor, I wanted them to be from my world. I'm a working-class Māori boy from West Auckland. The lady I saw was a hoity-toity white lady from Rimuera, and I thought, she can't fix me. There's nothing this woman can do. But the fact that she wasn't from my culture, that she had a neutral view, there was no judgments, there were no... Preconceptions, Yeah, yeah, there was nothing. She was able to knock over the house of cards that I had built around myself just by giving me a completely different view. So we started out in high schools. And what I didn't realise was young people's worldview is set by high school. And their worldview of counselling is it's a mental health intervention. Why? In order to get free counselling in this country, a young person has to first go to a doctor. The doctor then has to diagnose them with a mental illness, and that little label follows them around for the rest of their lives. Then they go on an excruciatingly long waiting list for anywhere between six weeks and 18 months, depending on what level of care they need. And then finally sit in front of a burnt-out, underfunded, under-resourced mental health professional. Then we started an intermediates, and I thought intermediates were too young, but holy crap. When we got to intermediates, these kids are looking out. And by that, the questions that they asked were, I have a friend who's this, I think my dad's this, I think my mum's that. They're still looking out at other people and wanting to help. And then we've just started in primary schools with new entrants. And what are you doing with the new entrants? So we read books. So I've got, I wrote a book on bullying. Again, in New Zealand, we deal with behaviour. We don't ask what drives the behaviour. Our current strategy for dealing with bullies is let's bully the bully. All bullies are bad. We're in a pink shirt day, fight against the bullies, push back on the bullies. That's behaviour. We need to ask, why do bullies bully? And the answer is simple. Bullies bully because they're being bullied. Behind every little bully in school today, there are bigger bullies in that kid's lives showing them that's what love looks like. And so our book was about helping kids to understand why bullies bully and then coming up with some tools and then helping them to recognise that sometimes they bully. And these kids are smart. They know. They know what's good behaviour and bad behaviour. And I've just finished the second book, and it's called Accord It All. Both these books are based around a truck and a dog. Mac, the hopeful black dog. It's a bulldog. Everyone thinks the black dog is something that's negative. We just try to turn them into something positive. As a dog that used to beat himself up, found a truck, and they go around helping kids who are struggling. And this book highlights counselling. So our goal now is to work in primary schools and normalise counselling and turn counselling from a mental health intervention to it's just a conversation. People think when you go to a counsellor, you hand your life over to the counsellor and they now own your life and they fix you. What we're saying to young people is everyone has troubled thoughts. We all have up and down emotions and when you need to talk about it, It's a shared experience. You still decide where you are going on your mental health journey. You are still in charge of your mental health journey. You're just discussing it with an expert in the same way you discuss hotting your car up or fixing your car up with a mechanic. It's still your car. You're still in charge. 
but you make the decision on what that car looks like and where that car's going to go. It's so basic and so simple, and it's cheap. That's what I expect to meet resistance every inch of the way from uh, academic and bureaucratic um, arrogance would be the best way to describe them. So our whole goal now is to turn counselling into just a conversation. So by the time these kids get to high school age, the world viewers, counselling is the same as the gym, it's the same as the doctor. It's somewhere where you go to stay well, not when you're unwell. Yeah, it's simple, it's effective. Yeah, I think having regular counselling or just having someone that's separate from your own life to talk about these things. Yeah, is it's so not even a counselling session. It doesn't have to at that age. It doesn't. Yeah. It's just so-and-so said this to me today and I got really angry. Well, that's a normal part of life. Let me tell you about when I get angry. And Do you, you know what I mean? Oh, you have that? One of the most common things when I talk, share my story about my critic, kids come to me and say, so, 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 mister, you used to, you, like, you used to have conversation with yourself. No, I still do. What? You used to have those voices. Yeah, no, I still have them. But you're, you're on stage and you're talking. Yeah. And, but you're on TV. Yeah. No, but wait, how do you, you don't get rid of it. It's always there. You will always have doubt. Doubt keeps you safe. It stops you from doing stupid things. It stops you from walking over and patting the lion. You're always going to have it. You just learn to manage it. What do you do to try and manage that voice? Speak to kids in schools. You know, how I fill my cup, I speak to kids in schools. I've been like, I, I'm riddled with self-doubt, but I'm 60. I've got 10 years left tops. I've had a stroke, a major stroke. I've had a couple of heart procedures. I've hammered myself with drugs and alcohol for the best part of, I don't know, 35 years. So I don't have time to sit around and whinge and mope. All I've got time to do is do what I need to do before I'm gone. And that's what drives me. Do you seek counselling yourself? I don't have time, but I have really trusted people that I can sit down and vent to. Because that's all counselling is really, it's venting and having someone give you a different perspective. Hurt and anger makes people do stupid things. They'll either externalise and blow it on someone else or they'll internalise and blow it on themselves. Both are deadly, both are bad. We're the only organisation in this country that's spoken to 350,000 kids face-to-face and listened to them. We've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. We've surveyed them. Expectations around school and parenting are two of the most deadly things that are happening to our kids right now. Expectation is going to cause the next major wave of mental health problems. And it's not COVID-related. Jeez, I'm sick and tired of governments and bureaucrats blaming tragic events or events for mental health issues in in this country. They did in Christchurch. Like in 2013, when the Christchurch earthquake hit, they had a pretty low number of suicides that year. By 2017, it had grown hugely. And they went, oh, it's the earthquake, it's the earthquake, it's the earthquake. But if you look at the data, the year before, Christchurch had the highest suicide rate in New Zealand, the highest suicide rate in New Zealand. You could argue that big events bring suicide numbers down, suicidal thinking down. And it's the same with COVID. When COVID hit, the numbers actually dropped. Again, I get sidetracked. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I've got ADHD, so (laughs) my brain does not stop. It just goes... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I know people who 
also like that. <laughs> yeah, there's just so much to do. What was your question? Yeah. Oh, well, now I've forgotten. Good. It's not just me. <laughs> If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So it's part of your projects is um, going into schools and educating kids about what Providing a conversation. Yeah, about, no, we, know, just, we just go into schools and, and normalise overthinking. That's yeah. all we do. Yeah. Nothing else. Yeah. That's all we and do. And we've all got this uh, internal monologue. I've yeah. got this internal yeah. monologue constantly telling me like, oh, did I look after that patient correctly? I've yes, gone right. home and I'm like, have I done this? What did this person yeah. think of what I was doing? It just It's constant. Why did they look at me like that? What are they thinking? Man, exactly. Like room. this constant nah. imposter syndrome. Of, yes. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? It's constant. So the other part of your the work that you do is also like providing the counseling as yep. well like how do you guys do that is it gumboot friday yeah yep. great difficulty from september last year to september this year we've more than doubled in the last year new zealand public have donated two million four hundred and fifty six thousand six hundred and seventy two dollars and twenty five cents which gave us nineteen thousand one hundred and twenty two sessions so basically just on the last three months data we have to find between seventy five and ninety thousand dollars a month to keep this going, and that should double again in another year. So your the amount of money that's coming through your door is actually is increasing. It doesn't come through our door; it goes straight to the bank. I have to find the administration money to pay for it on top. So we've got a really unusual business model. It's where one hundred percent of people's money goes directly where it's supposed to go, and my charity, we cover the admin costs. It's a really shitty business plan. If you're going into business, don't do it. But we believe in authenticity and accountability, and we want people to know where their money is going. And we can tell people by the minute where the money is, who's getting sessions, by ethnicity, by gender, by region, by crisis, by school. Wow. We, this is all just standard stuff. And people should be held accountable for it. We've got eight permanent staff, that's all. So we're running all of our school programs for free. We don't charge anything. We cover all the costs for that. Travel, food, everything, advertising resources. We do Gumboot Friday, all free. Just It's all done on donations, yet we can't get funding from the government. So 19,122 sessions at 2, 2 million... is $126 a session. We try to get a comparison with what the government's turning out. The closest thing we could come to it was the student counselling that the government rolled out, $44 million over four years to deliver 400,000 sessions at $110 a session. In year one, they managed to roll out 9,600 sessions at a cost of $4.66 million, which is $485 a session. We OIA'd to find out who the services were that provided the counselling. We got cock-blocked. So basically they came back and said, yeah, it's done through primary mental health, through multi mental health, Pacifica mental health, youth mental health. They hired all the, who are middle managers basically, they win the contract off the ministry, clip the ticket, and then they fund other organisations and clip the ticket. Everyone's clipping the ticket. 
The reason they only hadn't, they could only deliver 9,600 councillors in year one is because they employ the councillors. And as government wages for councillors and psychologists is between 30 and $60 an hour. So no one's going to sign up for that. And the, the problem was with how these organisations are set up. They're set up like taxi companies. So they fund bricks and mortar. So once you win a contract, then you've got to set up the office then all the admin and then all the office workers and then the IT. Then you've got to buy the vehicles that the taxi drivers sit in and then you've got to get the drivers. Then you've got to get the taxi rank. Now, if you're a customer, you know, you have to go to the taxi rank and you can only take the first cab off the rank and not allowed to pick. This is under access and choice. All we did was we invented Uber. So... The councillor picks up their own costs, they take care of their own admin, just give me your hourly rate. And on an average, ours is $126. Of course we have psychiatrists that charge $750 for an initial session, but we also have animal therapists who charge $30. And we're from the school of whatever works. So we OIA them, where's all the money gone? Who are the people delivering the sessions? We can't tell you that. It's under primary mental health. And okay, what's a session? Could be like a counseling session. Okay, yeah, good. What else? Oh, it could be this, it could be that. Yeah, what else? Well, it could be a phone call. As long as the phone call goes over 10 minutes, that's considered a session. So, wait, you're telling me that you can charge $485 for a 10 minute phone call with a receptionist? How do we find out how many phone calls? That's the problem. They're not required to give any data for the first three years. Are you shitting me? So you're going to give away $33 million and they're not required to report? No, because these are all new. This is what the media should be investigating. It's ridiculous. If the New Zealand public found out through Gumboot Friday that I was charging $485 a session for counselling, but only giving the counsellor $30. It would be on the front page of the paper every day. The Prime Minister, the Prime Minister would be on television demanding an inquiry. There would be... Mr King, Mr King, one news here. What happened to the money, Mr. King? What happened to the money? 454. Mr. King, Mr. Come back, Mr. King. Please answer the questions. I'm sorry, Simon. Mr. King is driven away, refusing, but we'll be back tomorrow with more hard questions. What do you think is the government or the bureaucrats? What do you think their issue is with Gumboot Friday and I Am Hope? I won't kiss ass. You get the money in your contract that says you must not criticise. Is that part of the contract? In every single contract. See, I find that really difficult because one of the hesitancies that I had about starting this podcast was, am I going to get a bit of backlash from my employer? Because I'm 100% you are, a Nina. public servant. But now that I'm an academic, I have a bit of protection with that. But, um, but here's- I feel like I shouldn't have to. I should be able to be like, hey, these are the problems that I see in my work. It's very inefficient. I want to do something about it. But nobody's listening. There is a major review that Health News New Zealand is undergoing now. The irony is, how New Zealand are currently blaming MOH about the mental health issues. While they didn't have these uh, things, but Health New Zealand are working very hard now to put in uh, reporting. And the woman that sent me that, her name's Joe Chiplin, she was the woman that initiated the original. So she's blaming her old self. (laughs) 
she's blaming her old self. She's I've got a different uniform on now, so that exonerates yeah, no, me. It's interesting when people are like, oh, look, this is my new job with my new title with Te Whatu Ora. And I'm like, isn't that the same job that you had with a different with a DH. It is literally <laughs> shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Know, it's literally, yeah. and we'll just change the name of the Titanic so to the Hindenburg. When people, when, oh, when high ups are giving their press release or whatever, and they're like, or like the emails that they give to staff, and this is me talking to other people who are working on the ground, your doctors, nurses, and it's so and so saying that don't worry, like everyone's job is safe, and I'm like, mm. should they be? <laughs> yeah, I listened to Margie the head of Fatu Order, talking at a KPMG conference. And all she said the whole time was the inequity between Māori and and the colonisers, basically. Māori this, Māori that, Māori this, Māori that. Whenever we have suicide numbers come out in New Zealand mental health figures, it's always Māori first, Māori first. Just because something appears to be a good thing doesn't mean it should be done. This is the most separatist government since Rob Muldoon's era, way, way, way back. What they are doing is they are driving a wedge between ordinary New Zealanders. I said to the Prime Minister when they used me to sell their $1.9 billion wellbeing budget when I went down to Wellington, I said, can you do me a favour, Prime Minister? Yes, what's that? When you announce this thing, can you not do the Māori numbers first? Oh, but our thing says that these are the... Yeah, I, I said, yeah, sure. So you're saying don't announce... No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying to you is don't say them first. Every time these things come out, you announce Māori figures this, Māori figures that, and then you announce how much money you're giving them. And all you are saying to 80% of the population is these kids are more important than your kids. You are driving. All, so you're saying I shouldn't mention. No, what I'm saying is don't make it first, second, third or fourth. Make it fifth. I'm saying give them more than you want to give them. Just don't make it the first thing out of your mouth. Because all you are doing is driving a wedge between people. She didn't listen. She'll never listen. And the view on this government that no one is saying, it's the most racist government in history. And it's hard not to say that people don't have a valid point. This mental health is a New Zealand problem. One of the reasons they won't fund Gumboot Friday is because it's for all children, rich or poor. Did you know that there are kids in private schools here that aren't allowed to see their counsellors because mummy doesn't want Fritha to know that her children have got mental health problems? All kids deserve good mental health care. All kids should be in charge of their own mental health issues. And, you know, all of this crap about parents shouldn't have to have a say in everything. We've got some Dirty little secrets in New Zealand. One in four girls are sexually abused in this country. One in eight boys. Every time you see a rugby team run out on the field, two of those boys have been abused. Every time you see a netball team, two of those girls have been abused. And they're not abused by strangers. We've got people judging eight-year-old kids in ram raids. I can tell you now, those kids are being raped in their homes. They're being beaten in their homes. And yet we just make judgments, those little shits. Where are their parents? Uh, they were the same parents that were raped in their homes, that were beaten in their homes.
We talk about the whole, like, whether or not targeted funding or targeted Targeted funding doesn't work. It's a New Zealand issue. Because I feel like a lot of the interventions that we have had in the past were not targeted funding. And I think the evidence is that a lot of the non-targeted funding also doesn't work. In the last 10 years, all we've done is target fund. I can tell you, I go into areas where I bring in the local community groups. So we go and do a community talk and we invite Everyone who's involved in mental health, some places there are over 20 organisations. Oh, yes, we do anxiety to 14 to 16-year-olds from Brown Street to Smith Street. But I live on Andrews. Oh, sorry, we're not in, you know. It is down to the micro now. This was in Rotorua. Tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars targeted funding. It doesn't work. Mental health in particular and suicide prevention, suicide is the enemy. New Zealanders, we have a shared history of fighting the common enemy with in our own group. Second World War, the New Zealand Company, white New Zealanders went to war and fought alongside the Māori Battalion. We're all in our own companies, but we were fighting a common enemy and we were together. Here's a problem you've got. Understand what you're saying. If you are now constantly putting one ethnic group ahead of all others you're actually making an enemy of 80% of the country. There is more than one way to kill a cat. Sometimes it's better to choke it on cream. I was just thinking back to the, your point about the uh, soldiers. Wasn't it that when they all came back, a lot of the lands were taken from the Māori soldiers who left? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But that wasn't do- obviously that wasn't done to the non-Māori soldiers who'd come back from the war. And There uh, is you know, a whole industry, Nina, made up of people who say colonisation is to blame for all the problems in this country, particularly youth suicide. I see more suicidal Māori kids than anyone except coroners in this country. And I can tell you this, I see hundreds of them. Not one of them's ever come up to me and go, yeah, I want to kill myself because of the treaty. Never happened. It's never happened. Now, you can draw your academic long bow and take it all the way back. But the fact of the matter is you cannot continue to give people an excuse not to try. And colonisation now is an industry. I get so pissed off with some of these organisations out there. I see them all in their cars, all parked outside the cafes with their beautiful corduroy on the door and their lanyards and sipping their coffee, looking down their nose at the homeless people who aren't actually homeless, are mentally unwell. They are mentally unwell people. The hypocrisy that I see of these greenstone-wearing virtue signalers who actually do nothing. What are the patterns that you're seeing when you're talking about seeing a lot of suicidal Māori kids? No hope. I'm beaten down, completely beaten down, constantly told that I'm not good enough, that I'm not going to make it. Now, two things happen when you're rejected. There are two types of people. There are type A's and type B's. Type A's will internalise everything and make everything my fault. I'm useless. It's not fair. No one's going to ever give me a chance. Or type B's, fuck you. I'm coming at you. And guess what? 
There are more type Bs in the world than there are type As. And we're witnessing this right now. When you're scared, scared people do scary shit. You know, when your reality is being raped at eight, being beaten at eight, being constantly told that you're not going to amount to anything. And what do you think is the best way to get to these people? That's a big question. It's, It's different for every child. See, the problem that we come up with in this country, we're always looking for a blanket solution, the one big fit. It's like the old days when they used to have one pub for the whole town. We're living in a world now where there are boutique bars everywhere. So it's not just me. I don't have the answer. Every community has a different answer. But no one's listening to the communities. No one knows more about youth problems in any country in the world than youth. But they're not hurt. They're not being listened to. These bloody kids say they don't want they want, that's why we're here. I've been to some of the biggest Maori suicide prevention hui's in the country, and I've been the youngest person there, Nina. Really? I'm the youngest person there. It's ridiculous. No one is listening to our kids. I go to suicidal units. First thing I say to kids is, what do you want? What do you need? I don't know. Yeah, see, these kids say they don't know. The only reason they don't know is because no one's ever asked them. They are constantly being told what they need. And what do they say when you ask them? I don't know. I say, take your time. We don't have to have an answer now. Take your time. Think about it. I'll be back. That's what hope looks like. Someone's hearing me. Someone's seeing me. Someone is valuing my opinion. That's what hope looks like. I'm a person and I'm good enough. All these parents running around telling me kids put so much pressure on themselves today, Mike, don't they? No, boys would sit at home all day jerking off playing PlayStation if you let them. We're the ones putting pressure on them. We are the ones. Our jobs as parents, we have one job, one job, in my opinion. Find what your child loves and then use your connections and your money to figure out how we can get them paid for it for the rest of their life. Job done. Okay, there's just one last question. One last question. <laughs> I mean, it's just like a really easy one. It's a really easy one. What is your favorite like food? Like, where is like your favorite place to eat in the whole wide world? You're gonna be like, oh, that's so cliche, Mike. <laughs> that's so cliche. So I like a, a three-piece deluxe quarter pack thigh wing drum combination with an extra thigh from. Dirty Bird, KFC. Oh, my God. I love KFC, but I'd get, like, a different order. Like, I'm always, like, something as long as it's either got Wicked Wings or, like, no, a hot no, and spicy version. Some old. So anything <laughs> spicy. Like, <gasps> I don't like spicy oh my food gosh, at King. all. Like, butter chicken spicy for me. Like a mild. <laughs> <laughs> like a mild, like a mild yeah, white yeah. butter <laughs> chicken from the food court. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Disappointing. Yeah. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'm not a spicy person, never have been. <laughs> I don't know, this combo seemed pretty spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where it all comes up. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's really been a good, really good combo. If you're happy to come back again, I'll love come to. Back. No, oh, perfect. Back. I feel like we've really only scratched the surface. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Mm-hmm.
Oh, 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 oh,